I have always found that I have a special connection to animals, whether they know it or not. Hello, I'm John Rossi. I'm a touring drummer with a love for all things animal. When I'm on the road, I spend as much time as possible visiting zoos, aquariums, rescues, and rehab facilities. Now, I want to share those places with you. I'll be talking to keepers, vets, conservationists, volunteers, anyone who is as passionate about animals as I am. Join me on my Ross Safari. Hello, hello, hello. Welcome to the podcast that has a secret identity just like the superheroes in all the cool movies nowadays, the Ross Safari Podcast. Now, you may remember all the way back on Tuesday when I had Brooke Mitchell Norman, the host of the Rewildology Podcast, on as my guest. And we mentioned that I was Brooke's guest that day. We did a whole little podcast swap. Podception, as my friend Dr. Natalie Taco calls it. So yes, we did that. And now I thought that, although you should be over there subscribing to Rewildology and checking out all of her episodes, you might be interested in hearing the episode that featured me as a guest. So today I am bringing you that episode. Oh, and if you did already download that episode and go and listen to my story on Rewildology, you're still going to want to skip ahead to the end of this episode because this is the Rossafari podcast, and that means that I owe y'all a Rossafari poop story. So you are absolutely going to get one. It is my solemn duty as a serious conservation educator. Now, as she mentioned in her episode, Brooke is a fan of long-form interviews, and she's just recently started splitting them up into two parts. So this is actually going to be two episodes of her podcast, although both of them feature me, and it's one interview. Uh, so in the middle, you're going to hear kind of the end and the beginning of each episode. I'm just going to let that happen naturally, and uh, you'll all be able to figure it out. But yeah, so... um. This one's going to go long, and I hope y'all enjoy it. I certainly had a great time doing this, and I think Brooke is an incredible host. So make sure you're giving all the love to Rewildology, following along on Instagram, and subscribing to her podcast. Uh, we're really looking forward to continuing to work together to build both our bases and, and get our conservation message out there to the world. So without further ado, here is the two-part episode of Rewildology featuring John Rossi of the Ross Safari podcast. Hello, fellow Rewildologist. Welcome back to Rewildology, where we explore conservation, travel, and rewilding the planet. I'm your host, Brooke Mitchell-Norman, conservation biologist and world traveler. Recently, I asked all of you on Instagram if you preferred one long episode or two shorter episodes of the same interview split in half. About two-thirds of you voted for two episodes released in the same week, and I am happy to deliver. Today is part one of a two-part series with John Rossi of the Rossafari podcast. If COVID turned your life upside down, like I know it has so many of us, then you'll definitely relate to John's story. John is a professional drummer with a very successful career touring across the U.S. sharing his talents. But when COVID hit, all of his work and his strongest passion were ripped away from him. 
While on the road, John found joy visiting zoos and aquariums to escape from negative influences that were all around him. In doing so, he met lots of amazing animals and zookeepers, which became a podcast idea shortly after he was locked down at home. He found a new passion and a new title, conservation educator. If you've ever thought about doing something that was maybe in a different field or outside of your expertise, or you need some encouragement to finally tackle that one idea you've had for years, then you must listen to this show. If you would like me to keep this two-part episode format, please let me know by sending me a DM on Instagram at Rewildology or emailing me at hello at Rewildology.com. I'd love to hear from you and if you're digging the new style. Also, please like and subscribe to the show wherever you're listening so that others can discover how we can rewild the planet together. If you're an iTunes listener, please rate and review the show and let me know what you think of the podcast so far. And now... On to part one with John. Awesome. Well, if you got your water and your snake is all contained, we'll go ahead and. I hope so. <laughs> I hope so too. Oh, that's such a that was so thing. scary. Like yeah. I literally, I walked in and and I looked up and sometimes when our snake sheds, Zoe she likes to keep the skin and she'll leave it like on top of the the enclosure or whatever. And I was like, oh, did AJ shed? AJ's shed is moving. Oh, shit. <laughs> Luckily, I'm very used to like, I handle emergency situations pretty well. So I just very calmly walked over, grabbed him, picked him up, put him back in his place and threw some heavy stuff on top of the lid and checked the the corners. So I think we're okay. But who knows? Talk about a wild way to start a podcast. We're like, well, okay. Uh, thank God I needed a drink of water because my snake might see, be under a couch by this point. And <laughs> yeah, yeah. See that kids hydration really is important. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> if you're ever going to sit down and do an interview, make sure you have water and go up and get it because you never know what you might find. <laughs> yes. Yes. <laughs> awesome. Well, thank you so much, John, for coming on. I'm so stoked that you're with me because your story is very unique. And with that, I think a lot of people are going to connect with you. So I'm so stoked. So let's, before we get into all of that, let's paint a picture of who you are. So take me back in time. Where are you from? What was your childhood like? Where did you grow up? Cool. So my name is John Rossi, uh, Jonathan Rossi, since we're going back in time, um, <laughs> even though I go by John. And uh, Jonathan was born in Wilkes-Barre, uh, Pennsylvania. It's it's kind of northeastern Pennsylvania. Um, the office is very popular, and it's from Scranton. And Scranton and Wilkes-Barre are kind of like twin cities. They're, I don't know, 20, 30 miles apart from each other. And um, yeah, so I was, I was born up there, and my grandfather still lives up there, so I still do go visit him. And and uh, and um, that reminds me, I should call him. But anyway, yeah, let's and, do that. <laughs> uh, whoops. And um, and then my family moved out of there pretty early on. They moved around a lot when I was like the first couple years of life. But then they settled in uh, central Pennsylvania in a town called Mechanicsburg, and uh, I grew up there. And I lived there my whole life until maybe six years ago when uh, when I moved to Philadelphia. And yeah, childhood was childhood was cool. I uh, pretty early on, um, my dad had told me about being a a drummer. He was not a professional, but he was a, an amateur, but a very good drummer. And 
really intrigued me. And so I, I always thought that I should should learn some drums. And so I started taking lessons and got his kit and some sticks and stuff pretty early on. And there was a time that a, a choir instructor showed us the Beatles on Sullivan. And uh, despite the fact that I was very much not alive back when that happened in 1964, it it was as though it was happening live uh, to me. And I, I watched Ringo banging away on the kit. And I just I knew that was my my, you know, my destiny. I knew I was going to be a, a touring musician. I knew drums were my thing. And over the years, I've learned a lot about a lot of other instruments, and I can goof around on some of them. But drumming was always my passion with uh like a laser focus. And my goal was to become a touring drummer. And um, I would happily uh, walk away from good jobs or or screw up at school or whatever it took if it meant that I was going to be building my drumming even just a little bit more. And over that time, uh, for people who are wondering what that has to do with animals, it, it doesn't. Um, but over that time, one of my main passions was going to the the Maryland Zoo and the National Aquarium, which were, were pretty close um, to me. That was always a, a fun date for me was to take a girl uh, down there. Uh, I feel like you get to see your true self and their true self when you're around animals. Guards That's a good them date. Down pretty easily. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. And, and like also, it's just I think it's so much harder to not be real when you're uh, you know, being inspired and 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 all of that. Or if you're not, then get out because clearly not <laughs> a match. A so either way, yeah, yeah. So uh, that was, but because I was always focused on the drum stuff, I never even really thought that I might have another passion or another thing that like could be a goal for me as well. Um, but then once I started touring and and started. Uh, I had achieved that goal. Then I started to look at what else was out there and the animal stuff was really important to me and it kept becoming more important to me and led to me starting Raw Safari. Awesome. So let, let, let's get the timeline ironed out as well. So when was it that you really discovered that like drumming was your calling around what age were you at that time? It was in middle school, uh, like sixth grade, let's say, mm. um, is when I, I saw that video of Ringo and everything shifted. Up until that point, I was going to be a lawyer or a politician or apparently at one point a farmer, my mother tells me, um, <laughs> which does not really fit me at all. But hey, whatever. I was young. Um, and and then when that happened in sixth grade, it also coincided with uh, me kind of finding out that I was like the top drummer at our school. Like as we got assigned different parts and stuff, things were happening. So it solidified a, in you. Yeah. And I was like, oh, wait, I love this and I'm good at it. Okay, cool. And you know, back then being being the top drummer at Mechanicsburg's middle school to me meant like I was guaranteed a ticket to to uh touring and stuff. And I did not realize how not true that is uh until much later. But it helped because I, I just stayed motivated and just was like, Oh yeah, this is what I do. I'm a drummer. I'm like That's awesome. I mean, and good for you, you know, to not let like the realization of like reality, especially I'm sure as you got older to realize how hard it is going to be to pursue that very particular path. So did you end up, um, so take me to after high school, did you end up going to like, like a musician school or did you immediately try to get into the industry? And like, so what is the path that took you to becoming a touring drummer? Like that's a massive accomplishment. Sure. So basically it was, um, you know, 
people in my life were not super excited about the idea. And so um, I got accepted to Berkeley, which is uh, one of the, if not the top colleges uh, for music. Uh, it's up in Boston. It is amazing. And especially for like modern music, uh, jazz and rock and stuff, it is, it's the school. And I got accepted and I was super excited, but um, no one was willing to pay for it. And I thought going into debt for that was probably a bad idea. And so I tried to balance it and go off to some colleges. I tried a couple different times, um, a history major, a business major. Uh, but what I would do is I would go and I would take some classes and I would be doing well. And then I would get the chance to play at a couple of bars at two or three until you know, three o'clock in the morning. And, and I wouldn't be in my classes anymore. <laughs> and it turns out if you don't go to your classes, you don't do real well. So, um, <laughs> It was. I ended up going back and finally getting a degree, actually in a kind of in a human resource area. But that was after I was a successful enough drummer to be able to start to like focus my attention on other things. Um, but yeah, I had I had horse blinders on, and uh, I always love to tell the story that even um, even like back in high school, like my high school sweetheart would come over and uh, sit downstairs doing her homework while I practiced. That's awesome. And like we. Yeah, and like we would hang out sometimes, but like also not. And she got to be really good friends with my parents because, you know, they'd be prepping dinner and she'd be doing homework and talking to them and I'd be banging away on the kit upstairs. And uh, there were times when I was single that like girls would literally be like, yo, take me to a movie. And I'd be like, I've got to practice. And for a high school boy, that's insane. <laughs> yes. um, that's it's really crazy. So, yeah, I was always I was always pretty driven towards that goal. So that's awesome, especially to hear that you took an unconventional path, meaning like you didn't follow the status quo, like you went directly into the real stuff, essentially. And it wasn't theory at that point. You're like, I'm going to be a touring musician. And so you made that happen. So what happened after high school? So you didn't go to Berkeley, um, but you you are, I mean, right now COVID, but we'll get into that, um, a successful touring musician. So how did you, how'd you get in? That is a hard feel to get into. You know, it's, it's kind of funny. Um, I took every gig that I could. I took every opportunity that was available to me. I, I, wow. Some of the stuff that I did, I look back on and I, I can't even believe it. Um, you know, there was a period of time that I would be playing for a theater and then walking out as soon as the um the music ended running to my car and running to a bar to play another 4 hour bar gig you know right after there was one night or one couple of weeks when I was playing Les Misérables at a theater and then going and playing as a rock drummer until you know 2 a.m. and that's just really confusing if you know those styles of music <laughs> yes. sitting in an orchestra one minute and pounding the snot out of my drums the next and um uh, yeah, I just, you know, every gig that I could take. The funny thing about it, though, is that you could really track my my entire career to touring through like three or four of those gigs out of the literally thousands and thousands that I did and and hundreds of people that I met and begged and auditions that I sent that were never even looked at, you know, and all this stuff. There was there was a time that I, I was in a band and uh, uh, the guitarist quit. And I took a volunteer gig um, playing the musical Ragtime just because I needed a gig all of a sudden and, and I, I liked the music. And the guitarist there really liked me and took me to my first paid theater gigs with him. And then he got hired at a, a 
theater that then was a professional theater uh, called Allenberry. And he brought me along with him there when they needed a drummer. And the first music director I worked for there really liked me. And uh, three years later, booked a national tour and was like, hey, I've got a drummer. So it's hilarious because I could tell you thousands of stories and tens, if not hundreds of thousands of hours and blood, sweat, tears, eviction notices, eating at McDonald's because it was all I could afford, all the things. But those four steps went from amateur drummer to <laughs> touring drummer like that, that quickly. But it took years and you never know what's going to be the thing. So you have to, you know, it's, it's, you throw everything at the wall and see what sticks. Wow. That's, I mean, that alone, I think should, you know, I hope anybody listening really internalizes that. It's like, if you have a path, it's going to be hard, but that's okay. You know, um, just keep going and, and persevere. Cause you don't know what, what that corner is going to be. Uh, that's and I had no clue when I got into the the conservation and zookeeping side that it's the same way. It's, yes, <laughs> I always say it's amazing to me that most people like most even when you go and see a tour, if you see a theater tour, or even if you go out and see like a famous artist who has a backing band that you know you're not going and seeing Aerosmith, you're going and seeing Johnny Lang, and then he's got a backing band. A lot of those people are not making a lot of money, not what you're expecting for a touring musician. Um, I do very well for myself. I've, I've found some good niches to be in, but um, there are people that you will see on a tour that you think, wow, they are living the life that are making $400 a week. And wow. the same is true in the zoo and conservation fields. You you see, you know, zookeepers that have been at, at zoos for 10 years and they're making 15 bucks an hour and you're like, Excuse me? Yeah. <laughs> I'm sorry, what? Like, you know, but you do it because you love it and because you can't think of anything else that you want to do so badly. And, you know, all of the travel and all of the getting to do what you love and setting your own hours and being your own boss to a point and all of that, um, make it worthwhile, you know? Yeah. So was it when you landed this um this theater? job. So it sounds like that just happened organically, like being a drummer in, in a theatrical setting. Is that when you started to tour or were you already touring? So like, let's get to into the path that started to take you around the US where you started to really explore stuff. So what was it? Like, was that really when you started to see, well, even the world because you've been international? Um, was it that? Um, so I've had I had a couple of cool opportunities. I feel like almost everyone who does this has these random moments of glory, even if you end up not having a successful career. And so, like, yeah, when I was when I was uh, eighteen, I got to go tour um, with this like band that went through Europe, and I did a bunch of of European touring. But um, it wasn't anything other than a really cool experience. Like, I love it, and I'm I'm grateful for it, and I remember it. Um, but yeah, it was well, meant nothing. And, and almost everyone that that was there is not in the industry at all anymore, you know? So like, that was a cool fluke thing that happened. But yeah, no, most of it was just, you know, I would try to do little tours with, um, with the bands I was in or whatever. But it wasn't until I hit professional theatrical playing, and then started to build my resume. And then I booked my first national tour. And and once that happened, it just, it blew up. And I, I've, been on the road, you know, again, not counting COVID for seven years, more on it than off it. So that's awesome. That's a good way to see the US on someone else's dime. That's for sure. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so from what I remember in our call, this is when you really started to see a lot of zoos and aquariums and other sanctuaries around. 
So tell me about that experience and why you decided or why you felt compelled when you were in these areas to go visit those specific types of institutions, because you could go to like art museums or different type of things, but it was something particular about zoos. So what was that? I have always found uh, that I have a special connection to animals, whether they know it or not. <laughs> um, and to me, it's it started off with uh, turtles and especially sea turtles. Um, they can bring me a peace and calm that nothing else to this day can. Uh, there is no better feeling in the world for me when I am stressed than standing in front of the ocean voyager tank at um, Adventure Aquarium and uh, saying hi to the four four turtles there and just kind of hanging out. You know, it it just it has a really cool effect on my my brain. It, it, it's very calming. And um, all animals have different effects, but they're all positive. I, I love you know I love all animals. And when I started touring. Um, I definitely liked zoos and they were on the list. And as the schedule allowed, I went to a few, but my second national tour was 11 months long. And that is a hellaciously long time That's to be crazy. on the crazy. And it was 11 months of one nighters for the most part. Um, a lot of places when you do bigger tours, if you're in Hamilton or wicked or something where you're going to be out, you're going to do two weeks a month in a city. So you get a house, you, you, you know, you could, I was on the bus every day. Wow. Um, and I loved it. I love touring. But uh, one of the main things you learn when you're touring is that there, there are people who aren't built for the road and they booked the tour anyway, and they're finding out that they're not built for the road. And so um, there was a lot of stuff that people were doing that I just didn't appreciate. There's also, I am not uh, a heavy drinker um, at all. And there's a lot of real heavy, you know, every night after the show, let's go get smashed. Again, not maybe not, even with not, other things too, extracurriculars on top. Oh of yeah, that. definitely, definitely. <laughs> and and hey, no judgment. And you know, there are times that I will will have some fun, but um, that's just not who I've ever been really. And so, um, I you know, I didn't want to spend my money doing that and my time doing that. And I wanted to have the calm and the peace that I was because I was loving tour. And I would I would we'd have these conversations on the bus, and people would be like, "Oh, this sucks, and that sucks, and oh, I'm so mad about this." And I'm like, guys. We were just in this place and we saw these things and then 2000 people saw us do our show and like, I'm so happy. And yeah, we know, John, we know you like to <laughs> We get it. And so um, I was just looking for something to keep me happy and positive, you know, and not let myself fall into that uh, thing I saw other people doing. And as I thought about myself and things that made me happy, I was like, well. I like zoos, and it turns out that most cities that you play will have some form of animal thing. And so, uh, you know, it started off wanting to go to a zoo or an aquarium every time I got to a town. And then literally, like, the first time I did that, I was just like, oh, oh, this is good. Oh, yeah. No, I need to be here right now. And once that had happened once, I was like, well, got to keep that going. And so every opportunity I got, as soon as our bus pulled into town, I already knew how to get to the zoo and where it was and what the hours were and when sound check was. And and I made it my priority, you know. Did you tell me about that one story where like you had already had like an Uber waiting and <laughs> to pick you up <laughs> and you ran? Oh, yeah. <laughs> what zoo was that? So, we get to Toledo, Ohio. And I had heard that the Toledo Zoo was incredible. And I wanted to go. And we got to town late. And so what I did was I actually called the Uber uh, a little early. I was using 
uh, maps on my phone to just track where our bus was. And when the Uber was waiting for me, charging that extra dollar or whatever it is a minute. And I was the first one off the bus and I grabbed my stuff and I grabbed my key and I, I threw my stuff into the room and literally like just on the floor, didn't even go in, had a piece so bad, figured I would do that at the zoo, whatever. Ran back downstairs. People were still getting off the bus. And I hopped in that Uber and I took off. And since we were late and uh, it was a bit of a haul to the zoo, um, I didn't have a ton of time. And it's a, you know, decent sized zoo. So I jogged the zoo and I stopped at enclosures and I, I made sure to give some time, more time to the animals that I wanted to see and, and less time to the ones that I cared about less. But I, I ran through that zoo and I left that zoo a sweaty mess. And hopped into the Uber that I had again waiting for me and went right to soundcheck. And I walked into soundcheck and I was like, hey, guys, I'm here. I'm uh, blue sweat. Okay, cool. All right, all right, all right, all right. Let's go. I didn't even run into my dressing room to put my stuff down. I ran on stage with my backpack and my sweating and the the Toledo Zoo sweatshirt and and stuffed sloth that I had bought. And I, I plopped down on the drums and I did soundcheck. And then I took everything to the... <laughs> the dressing room and and was like i should probably figure out food like it was it was insane but it was so worth it and i was in such a good mood and i didn't know that the toledo zoo had not only cool zoo animals but an aquarium with a sea turtle so i got bonus sea turtle time which was like the best i was so happy it was so worth it but yeah it was it was a journey um, and there have been times that was one of them uh when i was on a night with janice joplin we had our first dress rehearsal and we were in Providence, Rhode Island. And so I, I took an Uber to Roger Williams Park Zoo. And when I was trying to leave, the Uber could not find the zoo. And I was losing my mind. Oh my um, I am the I was the music director of that tour. I needed to be on time. I was, you know, trying to be a leader and with new people. And it was I was losing my mind. And and finally the Uber found me. But like I had started talking to people and being like, hey, is there any way that I could get like a ride to uh like just out of this park or something? And then like when people were not being cooperative, I just jogged and started running out of the park. <laughs> and I met the Uber like halfway and I was like, Oh, thank God. Okay, we're good. We're good. But um yeah, I have I have definitely uh, never been late because of a zoo, but I have had some challenging times because of a zoo. A little, a little close for comfort. <laughs> and always worth it. And always worth it. Oh, that's awesome. So how many total have you been to? Uh, 138 zoos, aquariums, rescues, and rehab facilities. That's amazing. Were they all in the U.S.? Yes. Yes. Yeah. When I was in, I'm trying to think back when I was in Europe and stuff, I hadn't really started the, mm. the quest yet. So yeah. Awesome. So well, um, no, that's a lie. Canada. I knew I was lying. Canada. <laughs> I've been to the Toronto Zoo and a couple up in like um, Niagara Falls, but mostly maybe 135 in, in the US and that's, then three in Canada so far. That's incredible. That's like a crazy number, which that's awesome. That's awesome. And this is um, so at this point, so you have been to so many of these places. So when did your deeper connection with the zoos start to evolve when you start to actually meet people and everything? Well, like I said, I always felt this this deep connection to the animals. Um, and then during that that second tour that I did, when I the eleven month tour, when I really ramped it up and was like hitting any zoo that I could find, I I also uh, went through um, a divorce and some other major changes in my life, and uh, moved down to Philadelphia area, uh, which was you know a lot of change. Going through that on a tour was. Um, 
a lot of people are like, oh my gosh, how did you survive that? I actually think it helped. I was drumming every night. I was not there. I was, you know, there. It, it worked out pretty well for for how I work. And um, but when I moved to to Philly, um, I didn't really have many people or places or things. And so I became a member at the Philadelphia Zoo. And uh, that is where I, I fell madly in love with Mei Lin, who is up here all. And, and uh, she was there at the time, I think, 15 and then 16-year-old Red Panda. Um, and I had never felt such an intense connection to any animal other than some sea turtles. And it was my quest to find out more about her and the other pandas there and to learn about red pandas um, that led me to start talking to keepers. And then once I started doing that, you know, it was like the dams burst open and um, it started off just wanting to know about animals. I did not want to know keeper names. I mean, I just, I didn't care. It was, it was my gateway to the animals. You know, they were just um, signs that could talk instead of being red (laughs) and that had, (laughs) you know, deeper information. But as I started talking, I, you know, it started off as, you know, oh, who's this panda? Oh, you know, this is Maylin. Oh, cool. What, what's she like? Oh my God, I love her. Oh my God, she does this. Oh my God. And then once that passion was there, then I'm like, oh, now, now I'm noticing you. Okay. You know, and, um, I remember there was a, a giant panda keeper in Memphis that, that I talked to for probably half an hour. And, um, and just a couple other keepers that as I started finding out about their animals, I was like, oh, these people are cool. And it made me want to talk to more. And the more I talked to, the cooler they were. And, you know, the cycle goes on and on. And, um, yeah, I just there are a lot of really cool people uh, in this field. I 100 percent agree with that statement. <laughs> so I think the next natural question would be then. um, Let's talk about your podcast. Let's talk about Raw Safari. Where did that come from? So like, tell me like, let's, let, I'm just going to assume that no one listening to this has any idea. So let, let's take it back to square one. So what is your podcast? How did it come to be? And what made you decide to do that particular topic? Sure. So, um, Okay, so I the Raw Safari podcast is a zoo positive conservation focused podcast. Uh, that's my that's my elevator pitch. And um, <laughs> the not that is that uh, I I like talking to people about animals and conservation and zoos and stuff. And it literally started where one day I was just like, you know, as I mentioned, I liked talking to keepers. And one day I was like, I should find the podcast where they interview zookeepers all the time and tell the stories behind the scenes at the zoo and stuff and. I found some where the podcasts are keepers talking about just animals. And I found some where it's one zoo specific, um, usually about specific topics, not actually about the keepers. But I never found anything that was like what I was doing at zoos where I was talking to people and finding out about them and connecting to their animals through them. And um, I don't know if you've heard of this thing. There's this little thing called COVID It's happening right now. And so since I suddenly found myself with some time and with this idea had already been in my head, my original plan was that as I went on tour, as I went to the zoos, I would connect with the zoos beforehand and like interview their keepers while I was there. Um, instead, what it has become for the most part is I do zoom interviews with people I, yes. I wish I was hanging out with. Although I have had some, some zoos that welcome me and I, I do have some COVID, uh, you know, stuff in place where I disinfect my mic. So I have gotten to go to some zoos and travel for this and that those are, those are always very special moments. Um, But yeah, and the idea is to connect my 
people to animals through their people, uh, as I like to say. And um, the initial idea was just I thought I would like interview a zookeeper every week or whatever. But then the more I learned about how interconnected keeping and conservation is, and the more that my heart grew for conservation as I learned about it as a kind of outsider, um, the more I, I also started including conservation organizations. And so, you know, now there are plenty of episodes from plenty of zoos all around the country, but also we've got uh, Okapi Conservation Project and uh, Red Panda Network and Penguins International and um, all of that stuff. So that's the idea of what the podcast is um, and kind of where it came from. But then the other part of this is that uh, when I started going to these zoos, I started taking animal pictures. Uh, and for a long time, it was just on my my iPhone. Um, it was just for me. It was, it was what it was, but I started noticing that I was getting some really quality shots, even just on the phone. And there would be times that like five or six of us would go to the zoo. Cause I wasn't always alone. Sometimes people would, would want to come and you know, there'd be five or six of us with our phones up at an exhibit, taking a picture of an animal. And four of the pictures would be blurry or them looking the other way. And one of them would be a beautiful head-on shot, perfectly zoomed, and it I got that shot. And I don't understand why. I don't have a background in photography. Um, I feel like a lot of it has to do with me studying and learning about and understanding animals. But I was getting cool shots, especially just on an iPhone, you know? And then eventually, uh, my girlfriend got me a, a nice camera, but it's not even like a DSLR. It's not professional level or anything. It's just a, a good camera with a good zoom. And uh, I kept getting cool shots. And so I launched the Raw Safari Instagram, mainly as a way to share my animal photos with friends. Whenever I would get a cool shot, I would show a couple friends, they would freak out, they would share it with their friends. And I was like, oh, I should I should have an Instagram. That would be fun. That's the um, perfect medium. Yeah, yeah. But I had I had no idea that it would become anything like when i launched it uh raw safari obviously a pun my last name is rossi and uh it's my my zoo safari so um you know i made a portmanteau and, and it made me happy and and that uh, i like dumb jokes and puns i like words um and it was for a way for my friends to see my photos and then other people started finding it and then more people and then i followed animal photographers and zoos and they followed me back and now we're over five thousand followers and uh that was that was kind of the platform that let me know if I launched the podcast that I'd be in good hands because I started talking to people on there and I reached out to you know when I first thought of this I reached out to a bunch of keepers that had started following me and commented on my pictures and sometimes like keepers love to identify their own animals by name and pictures and stuff and so I reached out to some of them and I was like hey would you be on my podcast if I made a podcast and this is what I'm thinking of doing and what do you think and they were all super into it and super supportive. So I launched it. That's a great story. Like, and just talk about such a, just an organic one that it, all the pieces happened to fall into place. Like all the dominoes fell in the right order for you to launch this. And so what has it been like for you? Cause I'm just putting myself in like your shoes. Like, let's say that I did the exact opposite where I just happened to really, really love theater. And so I started a podcast on theater. Um, what has it been like for you to like enter a field that you were not previously in? Um, like, have you ran into any issues or, or anything? How has that been for navigating that for you? 
I haven't really run into any issues. People have been cool. And since I did come up in that world, even as a, you know, as a fan, um, I, I was, I was pretty lucky. Also, my, my, uh, my girlfriend is a fourth year vet student trying to become a zoo vet. So I do have some good guidance, um, you know, in that world. But the only issues that I've had is every once in a while, I will ask a pretty dumb question or, um, or phrase something poorly. Uh, in my interview with Lucas Mears from um, Okapi Conservation Project, uh, he was talking about the women's roles in the culture there and, and how to work with that. And I think I said twice, I was like, yeah, it's cool that you're in there changing the culture. And that's a big no-no. You, you don't change culture as a conservation organization. You you show them things and you work within their culture and you oftentimes have many guides in the culture who can can make sure you're not changing the culture. So I, I used the word change. It was wrong, but that's okay because since I'm an outsider, he just very nicely corrected me. And there are a lot of people who listen to this who are not in the you know conservation world either, who all just learned because I learned that, you know, that fact. And um I really love being able to bring the outsider because I don't think we ever get to inside baseball on the uh, on the podcast because someone starts spouting off, you know, AZA, AAZK, AZAC, blah, blah. And I'm like, whoa, 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 what what letters did you just I don't know, you know, I didn't know what an SSP was at the time, you know, when we started this. So if you if you follow the podcast and especially if you listen from the beginning, you learn as I learn. And that's a lot of fun. Um, there are definitely episodes where somebody tells me about a conservation project that I didn't know exists. And then a month later, that project is on my podcast and now I'm an expert on it. And that's really cool. You know? Yeah. That sounds so satisfying. It really is. The whole story. Yeah. And And the other cool thing about it that I have learned is that, um, so I've gotten to meet a ton of cool animals. Uh, so many. I think I'm up to having hung out with 28 red pandas in my life. They're they're my favorite species now. And um, and on top of that, I mean, I've hung out with a tarantula, and I used to be an arachnophobe. And there's a whole episode about me coming, like overcoming that, and actually handling a tarantula and walruses. That was insane. And so many different primates and, you know, little new world monkeys and all the way up to playing through glass, but playing with a, a chimp and, and learning some of its sign language and having it teach me how to play with it. The experiences that I have had are insane. And I, I was talking to my buddy Colleen, who's a zookeeper who's been on a couple times and, and is just, uh, just very encouraging and a very helpful person with the podcast. And she told me, you know, she's been a keeper for years. And she has not had the experiences that I've had. Wow. Um, I mean, you know, the animals she's with, she's with every day and she gets to have like deeper experiences with them. And I'm super jealous of that fact. But, you know, whereas I'm jealous of her ha- getting to wear Lucille the Binturong on her shoulder, I've also had Binturongs on my shoulders, but I've also held a baby red panda, which she is not allowed to do. She is occasionally allowed to see them, but not actually like hold one. And I have not only held like a little, little one in my hand, but have also had a couple other ones crawling on me. And, you know, um, the walrus thing, there are only a few facilities in the country that have, have walruses. Most keepers will never get to interact with one. And I have played with and petted and, and stood right with a, a walrus. That was, that was insane, you know, and <laughs> yeah. sea lions and sea. And uh, one day, um, 
it wasn't even part of the interview, but just we we did lunch uh, with the dolphins and the dolphins were swimming over and and playing with us. And like I was in this dolphin arena completely alone, except for the the keepers that I was with. And I was like, what is this life? You know, it's it's insane. Um, and feeding otters. I could I could go on all day, but I've had yeah. all these experiences in in, you know, seven months of of doing this that um just don't even make sense to me and i have so many more offers on the table once covid calms down because every facility is different but the things that i know that are coming down the pike once that is a little more cleared up it's even more insane Uh, the the amount of time with animals and cool people and stuff that are coming is just amazing that's it's so like cool. that's exciting. That is so exciting. I'm I'm just curious since you have talked to so many zookeepers and like just conservationists, have you found like a certain theme across you know your interviews with them or like any like connecting the dots? Um, just being an outsider and connecting and like talking with so many different people, is there are you finding a common commonality between a lot of your interviews? This will not shock you at all, but the number one thing is that whether they are the most people person ever or the least people person ever, and you might wonder, why would somebody who's not a people person do a podcast? Well, I don't know. But if you start talking about the animals that they love, they open up completely. Um, It's amazing. Anytime that I'm trying, because I like to start my interviews talking about the person, and it usually goes very well. But every once in a while, it's, you know, so are you. I'm Bob. What do you do? I'm a zookeeper. <laughs> Why? I like keeping animals at the zoo. And at that point, I just completely abandon it. And I go, cool. So tell me about your favorite animal. And suddenly they're off on a 20-minute rant. And I'm learning all about Bob's favorite bird and the fact that it eats this kind of food and poops this kind of way and has a keeper that it doesn't like. And, you know, the where it's it's uh, chicks have gone off into breeding programs and and how it's an ambassador for its species and how there's a conservation organization helping them. And then once that's happened, then I'm like, so, Bob, tell me more about why you got into this. And now that the, the door, you know, the door is open, then it's boom. So my trick is to always, I I keep that in, you know, it's the arrow in my quiver that I wait on using until I I either need to, or until I just get to the point where it's time to talk animals. Um, But yeah, if you talk to anyone and you know, one thing um, that's interesting is, is that a lot of zookeepers are uh, young female and many are attractive and i am a guy who's hopping in their dms to try to convince them to do a podcast because you know that's that's what we do here and instagram is a truly uh, great way to connect with people um all throughout the conservation community um and so i have also learned there that if i hop in and i'm like oh my god this is the cutest tree kangaroo i've, I've ever seen then no one ever seems too concerned but if I hop in and I'm like, hi, my name's John. I'd love to chat with you. Then you hit a little resistance. And it, it's really funny to me to see how much animals is the common ground really makes everything okay. You know? Um, beyond that, I would just say that pretty much everyone uh, that I've talked to is insanely driven. Uh, very, very in love with what they do. Willing to sacrifice... Um, you know, personal life things and definitely financially uh, to do what they they love. Um, and almost everyone is a big fan 
of the industry as a whole and of other keepers. One of the things that shocked me, I figured I would have the hardest time getting keepers to listen to my podcast. Because if this is what you do for 40 or more hours a week, the last thing you want to do is go listen to someone else talk about your job. Instead, I would say more than half of my audience are zookeepers. And some of the most rabid fans are keepers. And they reach out to me and they reach out to each other. There's this whole little community that's formed up of of guests that have reached out to each other and other keepers that have reached out to my guests and become friends just through the podcast. Um, And I would have never predicted that, you know? Why would you want to spend an extra two hours a week um, doing, you know, learning about your job? Basically, like that's weird to me, but uh, they they tend to love it. And and keepers, I, so many times now, I reach out to people and I'm like, hey, you know, I love your content. I'd, I'd be interested in you having you on the podcast. And they're like, oh yeah, love the podcast. This was my favorite episode. This I, you know, oh, and I know this person who was a guest and this person who was a guest. And yeah, let's uh, when, when when can we do this? And I'm like, oh cool. That's great. It, it is, and I know that when when we chatted the first time just how interconnected it all is and how so supportive this field is because it's it's all ran on passion. And if your passion isn't there, then you're just not going to thrive. But when it is there and you all have that common ground, it doesn't matter your gender, your age, your, your color of your skin. It doesn't matter when you all are there because you want to save wildlife in whatever form that is. And you already know that you have that thing that connects you. It's so powerful. Like even when the person that might just only speak five words, but you connect immediately because you both love the same thing. And so then just, I mean, that's gorgeous that you're able to just make people open up like that. Cause having been in the zoo world for years, I saw that as well. You know, there's a super, you know, extroverted people that, you know, love to doing the zookeeper chats. And then there's the other people that are like, I'm only doing this talk because my boss is making me. (laughs) (laughs) Yep. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, yeah. No, but everybody together, though, you're all work together and you find a way to work together because you just want the best experience possible for the guests because that's how conservation happens. And then also because you want your animals to have the best life possible as well. Absolutely. And I think one thing that I really love, um, one role that I I serve in this community that I didn't realize until someone pointed it out to me is that I am living proof that you, by talking to your guests and by reaching out to people and um, sharing your animal stories and sharing your passion, can have a actual, you know, able to be seen and heard impact on on somebody because i have gone from a zoo fan to a conservation educator and uh the the with the podcast we've we've um you know i constantly hear stories of people that learn about zoos or conservation organizations and raise money for them or donate money to them because they heard them on the podcast um i know i you know ross safari has raised over a thousand dollars uh for red panda network alone um and and there are plenty of others. And like, I remember I did an episode on Elmwood Park Zoo. And uh, then when they had a flood there, I just, and it wasn't even an episode about Elmwood Park Zoo, but in the intro to another episode, I mentioned I had gone and I helped them clean up the flood and everything and how amazing they were. And I know three people that reached out to me and were like, hey, just made a donation to Elmwood Park because of, you know, what you said. And that blows my mind. And I've been able to help in in small little ways like that with with different zoos. Um just upping their um, follower count or, or, you know, sharing about fundraising or 
uh, finding out that a conservation organization is having a speaker and they're worried that they're not going to have good questions. So can I come in as a ringer and, and ask some questions? And um, I love it. I love doing it. I love being a part of it. And I'm only here because of the direct connection that keepers made with me and inspired me and, and taught me and took the time to, to educate me. And, you know, when all of this started, I didn't know what an AZA was. I didn't know what the SSP was. I didn't, I knew that conservation was a thing and I knew about WWF and stuff, but you know, like I said, I didn't know what a red panda was. And now they're literally my favorite animal. And I have pictures of them behind me and a stuffed one sitting over there. And I am a volunteer um, on the communications uh, and writing team of the Red Panda Network. And like so much has come of just people taking the time to be cool and, and talk to me about stuff well before the podcast. Wow. I mean, if that isn't inspiration for anybody, if you're thinking about doing anything, and that doesn't have to be a podcast by any means, but something like that where you know that you're so passionate and there's just this burning idea that just won't leave you. And and look what can happen. I mean, it was just an idea that happened to sprout out of something pretty terrible, aka COVID, and what it did to your job, what it did to your role, what it did to your whole industry, which I can definitely relate. But you were able to find something good in the bad. You you made the lemonade with a whole bunch of lemons and went into a completely different field and connected with these amazing people. And then you've been able to do so much good because of that. It's just something that was just a hobby just to get away from people that were drunk and down and doing other extracurriculars that I don't even want. I don't even know. I mean, I know <laughs> enough about the music industry to know that like some shit goes down. <laughs> so, <laughs> <laughs> yes. And, you know, the funny thing about it is, too, it kind of saved me. Um, I have been since middle school. I had one goal was to be a touring drummer. And then I became a touring drummer. And yay. And then it was taken away from me. And I got home from from my last tour dates on March 8th. And um, within a week, every gig that I had booked for the next year was gone. And I had worked so hard to book those gigs. And that's the thing when you're in this industry, when you do it, like I do it, you know, even when you're on tour, even when you have a nice long tour, like I have, it still is only goes out for a couple weeks or a couple months and then is off. And then, it, so you still fill that space. I, I put in for dozens of jobs every year. It's like, if you're listening to this and you're not in that world, imagine applying for 12, 15, 20 jobs a year minimum, sometimes much more. I'm lucky that I'm successful enough where I don't have to do as much. I know actors who audition 100, 200 times a year. And then wow. dealing with all of the rejection and all of the prep for each one and and all of that. Um, and since I'm music direct, I not only have to you know audition or submit videos or whatever, but I also usually interview and I talk to people and I, um, yeah, it, it's like, I, oof, yeah, if you if you if you're a person who has had a job for multiple years, it's it's hard to even picture what it is like to not know what your next gig is going to be and not know, you know, sometimes. Um, so so I worked really hard and I built an entire year's calendar, which most people in my industry cannot even do. And then within the course of a week, it was gone. And um, at the time, my my girlfriend was on an externship, so she was not home. And because she had been on an externship and I had been on tour, all of our animals were with her parents. Um, so I was in a completely alone house and everything I'd worked for was taken away from me and, uh, all the zoos were closed. 
Um, so I couldn't even go see, see animal buddies because of COVID. Um, and it was, it was, it was a pretty tough time, but that, that I was able to turn that into, uh, eating way too much unhealthy food and also building a podcast. So, you know, it was late at the end of the time. I was so desperate for animal time there. <laughs> this is going to make you laugh at me. <laughs> I am embarrassed by this fact, but. There is a zoo that is near where I live. It is in Delaware. It's called uh, Brandywine Zoo. And it is a small zoo that is in a park. But it is a great zoo. It is an AZA zoo. It is it is lovely there. And um, I was really sad about not being able to, to go to zoos. And I remembered that Brandywine Zoo is in this park. And you can kind of see a couple of the exhibits through the fence. Kind of including the red panda exhibit. And so one day I drove the 30 minutes to get there, walked over to the fence and just stood at the fence, staring through, trying to catch glimpses of their red pandas and a couple other animals. And it worked. I got to see them. So then that became a thing that Zoe and I did a couple of times where we went to, to just stand outside a zoo to catch glimpses of animals because that's how much we love them. We also went to Elmwood Park Zoo once or twice because you can see their, uh, their giraffes from the, uh, the parking lot. And, and that's how badly I needed animals in my life at that time. Hey, thanks again for listening to this episode of Rewildology. If you like what you heard, hit that subscribe button to never miss a future episode. Do you have a cool environmental organization, travel story, or research that you'd like to share? Let me know at rewildology.com. Until next time, friends, together we will rewild the planet. Everyone, welcome to part two of the two-part series with John Rossi of the Rossafari Podcast. If you randomly clicked on this episode and haven't listened to part one of my conversation with John, then I highly recommend hitting pause and heading over to episode nine to hear John's story from the beginning. If you don't mind starting in the middle of the conversation or have already listened to the previous episode, then awesome. Let's keep her on going. In this part of the conversation, we dive deep into how John made the Rossafari podcast happen, including connecting with zookeepers and conservation organizations, plus all of the hoops that are involved to make them happen. And let me tell you, there's a lot. We also chat about some personal struggles like battling mental health issues after losing his musical career to COVID and an even bigger life event, unexpectedly becoming a father. Again, if you're liking these two-part interview series or not, that's cool. Hit me up on Instagram at Rewildology or email me at hello at Rewildology.com. Let's get to the show. So this most recent episode that I just published, we actually went very deep into mental health and um, just like her personal struggles on what she's had to go through and how she's overcome that. And I would love to talk about that a little more. How did you come out of that to get enough motivation to start this podcast? Like what was your process for you? Like, I, was it like, I have to do something or like, how, how did you, how did you come through that? Um, I don't think as it was happening, I was aware of the fact, but yes, that was what was going on behind the scenes. Um, and I'm just a very driven person. I mean, to make it in the industry that I've made it in, um, you have to be, you know, um, there are literally you know, hundreds of thousands of, of people who would take my job, if not millions. And uh, not only do I want to do it, 
uh, but I want to be paid well for it and I want to get to do it touring around the country. And, you know, um, I was always super driven. And so when I started the podcast, uh, it definitely was just a, okay, cool. Now that I'm starting to do this, I'm driven and all I'm doing is studying how to make a podcast and relearning the audio engineering tricks that I knew from recording drum stuff and applying them to this and finding my gear and figuring out what of my drum gear I could use to to record a podcast and all of that. And then studying podcasts and reading. And as I'm sure you know, podcast statistics are very weird. They are not um, aggregated the same from every place that your podcast is downloaded. And uh, it's all very strange. And there are a lot of uh, theories out there um, about you know what makes for a good podcast, and they often contradict each other. And um, I know we we've talked yes. a little bit about uh, like the length thing. Like I keep mine shorter because I've read things that say that that is what people want. But then at the same time, like the most popular podcast out there is like Joe Rogan, and he'll go three four hours. So who the heck knows? And and there <laughs> there's so little data on this this newest newer form of you know, uh, show that it's really frustrating, but I was still out there reading every article I could and all the contradictory ones and trying to put it together. And, um, yeah, I really threw myself into it and I think it definitely helped a lot, but I don't think I realized it at the time. I'm just a driven person when I want to do something, but now looking back, I'm like, oh yeah, this is insane. And I still think it's insane. I'm doing two episodes a week. That is so much work. And um, I, I started off, I had read an article that said that when you release your podcast, release two a week for the first couple of weeks because it gives people content. It makes them want to sign up. It, um, you know, earlier on when people find your podcast, it's easier for them to go back to the beginning and not feel overwhelmed, whatever. So I was going to do three weeks, I think, of two episodes and then go back to one. And and Zoe, my girlfriend, was like, well, I really like it. And you're putting out a good message. And I think you should keep doing two a week. And I was like, okay. And so <laughs> I, I, I was already signed up in my brain because I was like, yeah, that, that seems like better than you know sitting on my couch being sad that I'm not playing the drums probably. And so I've kept it going. And who knows, when I go back out on tour, if I'll be able to keep up that pace or if I'll go back to once a week, I I don't know. But um, but yeah, I do two fully produced podcasts. Uh, all, I do all the work myself. Uh, Zoe listens before I release to to check for a little editing help, and, and she's amazing at it. But even then, I'm the one that has to make the edits, whatever. Um, and and it's all it's occupying my brain right now, which is which is pretty important. You know, that's good. That's. That's great. Yeah. I've had other things too. Um, I, I've done a lot of remote recording. I have uh, an electric kit here, but like a really uh, top of the line one and I can multi-track record from it and stuff. And so I, I've spent more time putting out tracks for people and, and helping composers develop stuff and, and all that than I've ever been able to. And that's been a lot of fun, but it's it's not the same. I like creating with people. Um, so yeah, it's sometimes it's actually a struggle to go do those tracks because it's just not the same. You know, and it's not what I want to be doing with the drums, but at the same time, it's also really cool. It's it's a weird mix of something I love and struggle with at the same time. But uh, yeah, mental health is definitely um, it's definitely a bit of a struggle in COVID times when everything you've ever worked for is kind of stripped away, you yeah. know, unexpectedly, as you know. Yeah. yeah. Thanks for sharing that. I think is the more stories that we we can get out there because it's not talked about enough. Like the struggles that we all think that we're all just going through a struggle and that no one can relate, but 
just like you said, we're all going through something and somebody who's now that I would completely say is completely melted in this world to have something so valuable to you taken away like that. It just goes to show just how resilient you are and just finding a way and finding something to occupy your mind and moving forward. I mean, I, I can't even imagine what it was like for you March 8th when you were in your place by yourself. And I mean, like, I just wish that I could have been a fly on the wall and just to see how far you've come from that moment of losing everything that you had driven. Cause I obviously at that time, the podcast didn't exist. So it, that wasn't even an outlet yet. Um, but that's so inspiring. Oh no. Back then it was like, Hey, I need to figure out, uh, how to shower again and, um, to, uh, to stop ordering shitty food. Um, cause I'm a stress eater and the whole not drinking and not really engaging in other stuff that much makes me a heck of a stress eater. Um, always have been. And, uh, and it, it's just so damn easy now to order pizza and subs for dinner and, um, and you know, whatever. And so I was doing a lot of that. Yeah, it was, it was not a healthy time. Um, I, there was a time in my life where I, I went through this kind of freakish car accident. And, uh, after that I, I had PTSD for about a year, but I was getting treatment and I was on drugs and it, it helped and it cleared up and, and, you know, I, I like handled it well. And with the possible exception of that time, that was definitely the darkest period of my life. I've never been a person who struggles with, with depression or anxiety too much or anything. Um, and I think drumming really helps with that. Because I'm hitting things very hard and it's a very physical activity. It's meditative. And, um, <laughs> it is. And and on top of that, I'm also traveling, which I love, and meeting new people, which I love, and having adoring audiences cheer for me, which does not suck for your self-esteem. Um, not going to lie. And um, so to not have any of that and, and not even um, – you know, I have my electric kit here, but I can't even set up an acoustic kit and really – slam the drums there's there's a big difference as you know in in playing an electric kit and playing yes a drum set and, and <laughs> even just, just the feeling of a hi-hat alone is like not even oh, close yeah. to the same it, thing it, insanely different no insanely different and and i am a um the beauty of touring is that i am a heavy player like i am in big venues and i am amplified you know what they're hearing is amped so i can pound the snot out of a kit and and with proper technique and, and doing it right but um i am i am not one of these little tap the drum guys i like to play and it really does help when you're doing that five six eight times a week um you know for an hour or more um it's it's it takes a lot of the aggression out and so i i didn't have that anymore and yeah it was it was it was a real dark time um ironically uh or you know but not surprisingly i guess um it, Zoe was doing her externship at the Pittsburgh Zoo at the time, and um, I went out there to help her leave once she got shut down because of COVID. And we got to go to the zoo like the day before it closed. And so suddenly I had a girlfriend again and was at a zoo again. And um, boy, did that help a lot. Uh, that that was that was the start of of turning it around. Those first couple days were rough and every time a new email came in i just sank a little further into my couch and you know yeah it was it was an intense time mm. thank you for sharing that and having the courage to share that and um there's another part of of your story that i know a lot of people can relate to and you can talk about it or not it's just completely up to you 
But when we were chatting, as we were, as we were like, you know, getting to know each other, you shared with me that you unexpectedly became a father and having personally known a lot of people, including some of my own closest family members, having gone through something like that. um, And I know a lot of people listening have probably gone through something similar. So could you, could you take me through that? What that was like for you? I know, I know that you absolutely love your son now. And I mean, not that you did it then, that, that came out completely wrong. But if you could just, just take me back to that and, and how you worked through that and, um, you know, and how that, that's worked with your life now. Sure. So I was, um, I was in a marriage and it was um, not great. And um, I, I was pretty much sure I was on my way out. There were certain things that adults have to do in order to have a child that we were not engaging in. Um, and then uh, one night, much to my surprise, the opportunity to to do so ha- happened. And um, wouldn't you know it, not, not only was the last time that ever happened between us, but uh, there was a, a, a lovely little consequence that, <laughs> that, that happened from that. Um, oh, the irony of life. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And um you know, to me, it, I don't know. It was just another thing that was happening in life. I am not much of a worrier, and I live very much in the moment. Um, sometimes keeping up my spreadsheet on who my my next couple interviews are is a bit of a challenge for me. Um, one thing I love about tour is you have a person who sends you a, a, a daily or a weekly of what your schedule is going to be. And then you just have this magical thing that you don't have to think. You Before you go to bed, you look at what your next day is and you find out when you have to wake up and what city you're going to and how you're getting there. And uh, then you can quickly research if there's a zoo or an aquarium. And uh, then you go to sleep. And <laughs> like it's, it's lovely and it takes no planning on your part, which is amazing. Um, and so for me, the whole thing was just kind of surreal. Um, and this happened, uh, I was traveling a little bit for gigs, but I wasn't like touring yet. And so I was still so focused on drumming and that life that it was almost like this side thing where I was like, oh, look, she's more pregnant now. Cool. And like, this is interesting. And I guess there's going to be a kid sometime. And, um, you know, my son, Miles, was born um in the night after a show where I played a show Saturday night and I had a, um, a matinee Sunday and I had to leave by like, I don't know, let's say 10 20 to make it to the, the matinee. And he was born at 10 18. And, um, I still made that matinee. Like that is how focused I was on drumming and my career and, and all of that. Um, and it was, such an unexpected thing um, to me, especially because, like I said, I wasn't really by living in the moment. I wasn't even thinking about like, oh, what is it going to be like? Like, if we, you know, you have nine months to realize like, oh, you're going to there's going to be this other human. But I, I don't really work that way. That's not how my mind works. And so, you know, at some point there was a, a pregnant person in my house. And at some point there was a not pregnant person and then a baby. And um, uh, I got my first tour shortly thereafter and, and hit the road. And it was all very, very weird time. And I, I did not really know what it was going to be like to be a dad or anything. It was, it was confusing. Um, I had a lot to learn. Uh, I had a lot of responsibility. Like I truly believed that I want to be a good dad and I want to, you know, 
um, love this kid and I want to to raise this kid as best I can and everything. Uh, but I also found myself in a situation where um, I was unhappy in a relationship and I thought, if I stay here, will I be doing a service or will I resent this child and will he be raised in a house where he sees people who aren't truly in love? Because it was it that was definitely mutual, um, you know, and I really and we talked about it and like we had an honest conversation and it was not an easy conversation. And in the end, I was like, yeah, no, I, I think I want to. I want to get the divorce. And, uh, and so that was a thing. And, um, it was very interesting. Uh, and then I remember I would come home from tour and I would go and pick up this little wiggly potato, try to connect with it. And, and I did not know how to do that. Um, so I studied and I, I, I learned and, and as he got older, it got easier. And, and now he is, you know, the absolute, uh, joy and and love in my life and I, I i look forward to every day with him and um during covid i've had way more opportunities to spend even more time with him and it's always amazing and exhausting and um you know ironically his mother and i get along way better now than we did for a lot of our relationship um which is super cool and i i really appreciate it, especially during covid because we you know normally i would go up and take him out to restaurants and stuff and um can't really do that. So nope. now that it's gotten colder, so uh, the the four or if Zoe can come up, the five of us sit and have dinner together. And um, you know she's remarried now, and um, and so yeah, it's it's uh, it's our big goofy family, and and we make it work. I think it's pretty cool, and um, you know I think it's also cool that Miles gets to see me. Uh, you know his his mom's a very traditional mom, and his stepdad is a very um. A traditional guy in a lot of ways he he likes to build stuff which i'm like other than legos i'm lost <laughs> and he works uh nine to five and and is uh you know good at his job and and works at a computer and and miles gets to see all of that from from them and then gets to see zoe and i out there chasing our dreams and her becoming a vet and me doing this podcast which he can listen to on on spotify and, and hear my voice and uh and knows that i'm on tour and he's come out and seen a couple of the shows that i've toured with now and um gotten to travel a little bit to do that and and i think it's really cool that you know he's growing up getting to see the more traditional thing and then also like what can happen if you're a dream chaser you know and and if you're a little bit on the fringe, but in a good way and can make it work. And, and I think that's awesome. Wow. Thank you so much for sharing that. It's almost like making me emotional because even though I don't necessarily have my own children, I view my, my role in my nieces and nephews life very similar because I'm like the out there. I mean, my mom calls me like her hippie flower child. Like they don't even know, like we don't even know how to introduce me. Like, so what do your daughters do? And they have no idea what to say that I do. And I'm like, I don't even freaking know what I do. And so just showing that, you know, cause we talked before about how such a small town that I'm from and, and how a lot of people don't see a different way. And so for you to imprint that in your son at such a young age is so special and so powerful for what he might want to do in the future. Yeah, it makes me really happy. And I do see in him now. So he's six now and he wants to be a video game designer. And um, I see the same drive. He's he's absolutely locked on that. And he um, 
he has a journal that he keeps about his game ideas and he wants to play video games and he wants to talk about video games. And sometimes he'll be telling me a story about his, his mom, like a real story, like, Oh, this happened. And we were talking about school and then suddenly Mario shows up and I'm like, wait a minute. Um, you know, but like he has that same focus that I have and that same drive that I have. And, um, who knows? He's six, who knows what's going to happen. But I do like that. I can show him like, hey, this is a thing that you want to do, whatever that thing is. Uh, cool. Go do it. That's what I'm doing. And I did it with music and now I'm doing it with the podcast. And um, yeah, you can too, buddy. You know, that's cool. I just had this idea that just hit me like right this very second. When COVID decides to shut up her ugly face, when... <laughs> Is there like a way or like, have you thought about a way to marry your two lives of like music and this conservation world that you're coming down? I'm, I'm just like, I'm just thinking out loud. This idea is materializing right now, but I'm sure you've had time to think about it. Have you? Oh, I've been working on stuff. I've, I've been working oh, on yeah? stuff. Oh, yeah? Um, yeah, I've talked <laughs> Anything to- Anything I can um, know about? <laughs> well, I mean, it's all it's all up in the air. You know, my, my original podcast idea, like I said, was as a tour to go to these facilities, you know, have it all planned out in advance and, and do my interviews there. And um, I think that would just be incredible. Um, I think that will make for such a richer show than, than what I'm able to do now, even though I really love what I'm able to do right now. Um, and so that's part of it. And then also, um, you know, I've talked to a lot of the conservation organizations that I've interviewed and stuff and pointed out like, oh, hey, if you ever need voiceover work or, um, you know, if, if you're making films or educational stuff and you want someone to compose music for it, background music for it, I do all of that. And I, I can either do it myself or I have friends who are amazing and frankly, who owe me because I've done a lot of free or very cheap <laughs> drumming for them. Um, yeah. And so like my buddy Taylor and I, we do a lot of work together. He's uh, the guy who does the acapella interrupting John Stinger that I have in my show sometimes. Um he plays guitar and bass and piano and and I play drums and I arrange and I play some synthy stuff and we've done podcast themes for people and we've been the backing band for people and I've got great guitarists and stuff who I can hire on top of that if I want and um you know I also just make my own stuff when I did Rasafari after dark um the the little like sexy porno music that I did for it <laughs> that was all me I did it all myself programmed it all sat sitting here you know having a blast with it um and so I can provide those types of things to conservation organizations to for their films for you know and I got a decent voice I could do some VO stuff I know how to record I know how to do all of that so um I've been talking to people uh, about that um, a little bit. And then the other part is just the beauty of, of touring is that I, I, it's not like I'm working 52 weeks a year, you know, um, even my best tours, I'm going to have a month off here. I'm going to have three weeks off here or whatever. And so one of the things that I'm trying to figure out how to do both now and then is be more a part of the um, conservation community. I want to start doing uh, some actual traveling and actually working on stuff. And I think there would be nothing cooler than volunteering for Project X and going and doing, you know, whatever they need. Oh, and also interviewing someone and talking about my time in the field there and making a podcast episode about it. Um, you know, and then also 
while we're there, you know, let's say I was where let's say I was, was partnering with Oh Copy Conservation. Uh, they do a lot of radio broadcasts. Can I can I help them with some music? Can I help? You know, there's so many ways to to marry the two. Um, so yeah, I think about it a lot, and I I look forward to figuring all of that out. That's awesome. That's so good because I see them as very complementary things. Like, I mean, the fact that, I mean, you already had all of these skills. I mean, yeah, podcasting is like a different thing, but you already had so many skills going into it, which is so exciting. And going down this field, I mean, it's sometimes super hard to look in any other direction, you know, to know how to do any type of production or any type of music thing, even if it is somebody's passion. And I don't know many people in the zoo field that also have in-depth music production skills in any way, shape or form. So you are probably an insanely valuable resource for anybody you met because now you're going to be in the back of their mind anytime they need help with that kind of stuff. (laughs) Yeah. And I'm really hoping that they will take advantage because I get, I get such a thrill from it. Um, my favorite things hands down with this podcast haven't been meeting animals, which I thought it would be, um, but have been the moments where somebody reaches out, like I said, and it's like, oh, hey, I got my stimulus check today and my husband and I don't need it. So uh, we donated it split between this zoo and Red Panda Network, both of which we heard about on your uh, your podcast or, you know, um, like I said, just making connections in the conservation field um, for people to, to help each other and grow and support each other. And uh, those things just Every time something like that happens, I just like, I, I, I can't believe it. It's just so cool. Yeah, absolutely. I agree. And so, and so when it comes to your podcast too, if you wouldn't mind sharing, what has been the, the really, really big highs and the really big lows? Cause coming into something that, I mean, I'm still such a newbie at as well. I mean, I'm God, I'm such a newbie. Um, but what has been like the, the hardest part of it? And I, I know you've already said so many amazing things that's happened so far, but what would you say is, is the best? What is the yin and the yang to, to going down this path and launching Raw Safari? Sure. The, the best is just the overall impact. Um, knowing that, you know, the, the podcast has been downloaded over 12,000 times and, and people are learning and people care and people share it. And every once in a while, I'll be like, scrolling around on Instagram and someone who I don't know has shared my thing. And, and I'm like, who, who are you and why are you helping me? And it's because of the message and that's awesome. And I love it. And it makes me so happy. Um, so just all of that, whether it's the, the money, you know, for organizations or the connections, all, all the stuff I just talked about, all of that. Also the animal time is pretty freaking awesome. <laughs> pretty um, <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm pretty, pretty, uh, stoked about, all of that. Um, the hardest part has been every once in a while, someone will misunderstand something or, or will, um, you know, um, in a recent episode that I did, uh, about protecting, uh, golden frogs in Panama. Um, I, I spoke to the, the two people, two of the people who are, are actually working on the ground in Panama, um, to save these frogs, uh, from Kitrid and, their story is so sad in a way um, because a couple of times now as things have been going really well, some egotistical jerk got in the way and um, let his human ego hurt the animals and and it's really had a negative impact and they share it. Uh, highly recommend checking that episode out and um, it's heartbreaking but also, you know, encouraging as many 
you know, uh, conservation stories are. Um, and I've run into that a little bit myself. There was one organization where it was signed off on and they, they did the podcast and, and, um, I guess one boss did not know about it and did not appreciate a couple of the answers that were given, although they were accurate, but they feel that they need to be more secret about stuff. And I had to cut some minutes out of that podcast, which I don't mind doing, but the person who, um, was actually the interview, uh, subject, uh, they really, really crapped on that person and they were super mean about it. And it's, you know, I, I didn't mind cutting the content that I, you know, I'm happy to help. I've, I've done some, I, I've sometimes been the one suggesting cuts because people get a little carried away with what they say sometimes. And, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm here for that. I'm here to, to, to support the organizations. Um, but yeah, there was one organization where the person was just kind of a jerk to, uh, the person that did the interview and, and it breaks my heart knowing that a conservation organization that I love and respect, and I still do has a person, you know, in the leadership ranks who really caused a lot of drama for no reason, for absolutely no reason. I've, I've checked in with other people from other organizations and kind of explained the story without naming names or anything. And, uh, no one else thought any of it should have been a problem. No one even else thought anyone else, uh, anything else should have been cut. But again, I didn't mind the cuts. I'm happy to do that, you know. Um, but really ruined this 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 young person's week and and uh, made this person question some stuff and and um, made me feel really bad. And all of that's really unfortunate. Um, but that happens in conservation. Like I said, I, I've learned that not just in my world, but from talking to conservationists. That um, you know, there I I know another person. Uh, one of the keepers I've interviewed, I'm not going to say more than that, but who was, was working with animals that, that were their absolute favorite. They absolutely loved, they absolutely wanted to, to be there forever. And their boss was such a jerk to them that they transferred to animals they don't care about as much. And that, that's not cool. That's not fair. That's not nice. Um, and I'm, I'm only hearing one side of the story, but I'm hearing it with enough tears and enough, um, details to, to, you know, believe it. Um, and that's that's a that's a shame. So there are not many people that I've met in this industry or heard about in this industry that are are opportunists or egotistical jerks or whatever, but they do exist and I've run into it a little bit and and that that really sucks. Mm-hmm. Um and then there was one other time where I didn't communicate a vision clearly and had a a, a person who's become a friend um clap back a little bit and that that stung for a couple of days, but I'm good at the conversations and we opened it up and all is well. But, you know, I care so much about what I do and I'm so passionate about it. And I believe that it's important. Um, enough people have told me that where I've actually started to believe it because sometimes it's easy to doubt yourself. Um, that, you know, I do take it personally and it, it, it's hard when something like that happens. Now, I just released my 63rd episode and, and I've had exactly two experiences that were were personally painful. I've heard about other ones that bother me, but I've had two that were bothersome and one of which is cleared up and in, you know, completely fine. So I'm, I'm doing pretty well. Um, but, but that one moment does stand out and, you know, there, there are nights when I'm, I'm editing a podcast at three 30 in the morning and, uh, wondering, you know, remembering that moment and being like, is this even worth it? And I know it is, but, but for every awesome experience and for every awesome comment and message, uh, a whole lot of those can be stomped out by one real shitty experience, you know? Yeah, absolutely. On that similar note, like having been in 
the zookeeping field, how, how have you figured out how to work zoo politics? I'm just going to just leave that question there and I'll just let you answer. <laughs> I'm so dang lucky that I am an outsider and even more lucky that I can be pretty charming when I want to be. Because the thing that I have found is that every PR department handles things differently. And if you don't follow their procedures, you'd better be ready to apologize and explain why you didn't and, and, and you know, be super sweet about it and super nice. And I, I am. Everyone knows. You know, I think if you listen to the podcast, especially if you give me a chance, you're going to understand who I am and then we're cool. Um, but yeah, like I will tell you, um, zoo Atlanta, uh, the woman who runs their PR is this woman named Rachel and she is amazing. She helped me so much. However, at zoo Atlanta, you have to go through Rachel to talk to people. And like, there was a time that I mentioned to her that a keeper spoke to me about wanting to be on the podcast and she very kindly, but reminded me, Hey, John, don't talk to keepers, talk to me. And I was like, oh no, I know this, this person reached out to me and I'm immediately reaching out to you. And it was totally cool. But like, that is how strict it is. You know, a casual conversation still has to be routed through the right thing. Um, at Columbus, they're helping me set up a couple of interviews right now uh, for, for post-COVID and they've been incredible. But you absolutely have to go through the right people there. At other zoos, like at Nashville, I've talked to a bunch of people there and they just have to make sure they get approval from who they need. But I've, I've never talked to a PR person at Nashville and I think I've done six or seven interviews there, you know, um, their keepers need to go through the right channels and all that, but I'm not involved at all. So it's, it's really funny. And then some zoos are like county owned or, or whatever. And, um, and then I'm going through government people and that's, that's all the weird. And yeah, some, some want to call and have an hour long interview with me before they agree to it. And other people already know who I am and other people just love the vision and every single zoo is different. And I, I learned early on that, um, the best thing to do is talk to a keeper directly or to someone directly and find out what their zoo does, um, because that way I'm not, you know, stumbling through and, and making mistakes in the process. Um, but it's it's a journey. And I have definitely had everyone. I've been lucky that everyone I've talked to has been very polite about it. But there have definitely been moments of like, Mr. Rossi, if you want to talk to somebody from our zoo, you are welcome to. We will set it up for you. We will help you. But please, please remember that you need to reach out directly to me between the hours of 9 and 4 p.m. Monday through Friday. Oh um, I cannot guarantee that I'll see an email that comes in afterwards. So please, please accommodate us and we will accommodate you. And it's like, okay, I, I can do that. I, I did not realize that. That's cool. That's cool. Whatever. I'm, I'm here for it. I just didn't realize because I'm, I'm setting up interviews at six zoos right now and you have six different policies and my, my poor little head has just turned into one of those head explosion emojis. It's fine. Whatever. But I do get away with a whole lot of, oh my gosh, I'm so sorry. I didn't know. Hi, I'm just trying to help. I'm let's do it. I will be the best partner. Just tell me how, you know, I, and I, and I mean it, I'm very sincere about that. So I, I think most people can read that. I'm definitely not phony in my passion about this. And I think it helps. That's great. I'm sure that was one of those, because uh, you and I chatted about the things that you don't have any clue is coming down when you start a new path like this. And, and I'm sure that was one of them. We're just like, what? <laughs> oh yeah. Well, and what? <laughs> like my best friend is he works in PR, not for a zoo or anything, but that is like what he does. And when I was telling him about this, he's like, Oh, this is so great. Zoos probably have, um, 
you know, either small or understaffed PR departments and everyone is going to love you. Free PR is the best thing in the world. And he's been mostly right. But like I said, some have, have specific, some are just like, no, there is, there was a zoo that let their keeper do an interview with me as long as I didn't mention their zoo name. And that blows my mind. Why would you not want the free publicity? You know, some zoos want to preview the episodes first, and I'm fine with that. I'm very accommodating, and I respect that. Um, I just ask that they respect my time as well, which they always have. Um, but why would you just automatically say, no, you know, this person can talk to you, but you cannot say the name of the zoo? Uh, why would you not want that free publicity? You know, yeah. it, it blows my mind, especially as a, a pretty established podcast at this point. Like, you know, people know what's up. And I find most times if I talk to somebody at a zoo and they haven't heard of me, if they ask around, somebody's heard of me. So, you know, we're getting there. But yeah, it's it's very interesting. Um, some of that that politics stuff. And some zoos make me put um, amendments onto the uh, the release form that I have signed by, by my guests and others have me sign release forms. And a few have, like I said, wanted to preview the episodes or, you know, the one organization, like I said, had some stuff cut after it went live, which it's fine, whatever. Um, it, every one of them is unique and different and, and it's hilarious to me. It's even, even in how they treat me. Some of them act like they're doing me a big favor and some, you know, I show up and they have a catered lunch rate waiting for me and they've lined oh, up wow. everything and they've like, yeah, Fort Worth Zoo treated me like I was a um, a famous person. I'm, oh. I, I got a private tour of the zoo with two people and, and got to meet ambassador animals and they set up a whole room for me for the whole day and they had, had lunch waiting for me and wow. um, yeah, it, it was amazing. And then other ones are very much like... All right, sir, we can help you this one time. Just tell us when. And that's fine, too. And I love that a lot of times when that happens, then they see their follower count increase or, you know, somebody reaches out to them with a donation or something. And then they're like, oh, and and then then the relationships get, get a little better. Sometimes even just hearing the interview helps. Yeah. Yeah. And I get it. And I blame... um I blame Blackfish for a lot of this, um, you know, that, that caused a lot of damage to an amazing... Um, rescue organization and conservation organization and um there's there's a lot of drama around it and people who were interviewed for it have come out against the film and said they were taken you know edited um and and to say things they didn't really say and uh a lot of the footage was not from SeaWorld but from uh non-regulated facilities and unfortunately i think a lot of zoos took that information and went okay we need to go on the defensive and so I do think that a lot of times people are like, who are you? What are you trying to do? And are you going to hurt our zoo? And once they see that, I'm like, hell no, then it's cool. But I do have to break through that initial thing. And even then, you know, I'm still not allowed to take pictures in certain places or not allowed to record in certain places or whatever. And I get it. I'm fine with all of that. I wish there was more openness in the zoo community. I, I think it would help. Um so that the next time somebody does a hatchet job like like Blackfish, that uh, people will will already, you know, be like, no, that's actually we we see what these guys do. And it, but I get it, and I get it from both sides, and I know how devastating it was to SeaWorld, which is one of the few organizations out there with enough money and power to survive something like that. You know, if that had happened at at a small zoo or something, it would just be wiped off the map. So yeah, yeah. Like, that's why I just, I just had to pose the question that way. So, 
I just know from experience that every single zoo is different. And I can only imagine talking to so many people at this point, just, just what you've experienced. <laughs> oh yeah. It's always entertaining. And there's, there's a, there are a lot of times that I, I, I've had to learn to be more organized. Like I said, like I keep a spreadsheet and everything and, um, I'm, that's not normally what I do in my life. I very much shoot from the hip. Like I said, I'm not much of a planner or anything, uh, but I definitely need to know when it's time to email Rachel and when it's okay to follow up with her versus when I should reach out directly to a keeper versus when it's the education department, who's going to be the best for me. And, you know, it, it, um, it's real interesting sometimes. Oh, that's great. That's great. Yeah. So it just goes, yeah, she's just such an inspiration. The fact that you release two episodes a week, like now that you've just talked about like we really laid out what it is that you go through and you also have to do you know have to get through some hurdles along the way to even get the episode recorded like it's it's amazing it just goes to show that your heart's really in it you know oh yeah it, it yeah. is <laughs> great so what are your goals from here what what do you think do you have more of a yeah <laughs> what's in your sights now so I just want to keep growing the podcast for now is number one. Um, and I have been having a lot of fun doing um, extra stuff. So I did an interview uh, with a band, uh, Sammy Ray and the Friends, where it was mostly focused on music. But then we did have a long talk about um, how awesome zoos are. And I kind of got to educate on on some conservation stuff. And that was really fun. Um and uh, I did Rossafari After Dark, like I mentioned, which was the more adult-themed stuff about um, you know, sex at the zoo and, and mating behaviors and all that stuff. Uh, and I did Rossafari Around the World, where I talked to keepers in other countries and different people and just, uh, I don't know, just little stuff like that that I think is fun and cool and helps grow the brand. Um, I have thoughts, though. Um, like, I, I, I have this idea in my head about doing... Um, uh, Rossafari reads where I would read a children's book as a short podcast, um, but like a conservation or animal book, like um, one of Dave of, Johnson's or something like yes, that. Yes, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, and and Dave, you know, when he would talk about those books, was kind of when I was like, oh, that could be cool. And I love uh, Lavar Burton reads the podcast, which, which is reading Rainbow for Adults, basically. And so that that put that idea in my head, and I was like, oh, that could be a fun thing to do. Um, and then, like I said, I've started doing more. Um, conservation organizations rather than just zoos. And I have this dream of eventually being able to go into the field and doing um, in situ conservation work uh, while recording and while, you know, making it all one big thing. Um, so that's, that's, that's the podcast goals. Um, obviously, I think the more just the more humans that know about it, that hear about it, that listen, that love it, that find my pictures, uh, that interact, that's a big part of it. So a whole lot of what I do right now is figuring out how to to make my my you know presence more seen and felt and heard and and doing Instagram stories and trying to get people to share and and doing some brand ambassador stuff where they'll share my stuff and I'll share their stuff and and partnering with somebody like you and you know yes, all of that. It's been um, so fun. Yeah, so fun and so so helpful hopefully for both of us, you know, yes. and and just growing growing the brand would be really cool. Um and then yeah, beyond that, I don't really know. I know that I really want to do more in conservation. 
and I want to be more hands-on. Um, unfortunately, a lot of the field is very prohibitive. Uh, it's very hard to even become a zookeeper. You need a bachelor's degree at a lot of places. You need years of experience volunteering. And to get volunteering, you need to uh, have a, a semi-schedule, like a semi-regular schedule. And as a touring musician, I can't do that. So um, I don't know what that's going to look like yet. Uh, but I also, you know, two months ago, didn't know that I'd be publishing articles for Red Panda Network. And seven months ago, didn't know that my podcast would make it more than uh, a month. You know, I, I had a dream. I was going to do a season of it. It was going to be 12 episodes. And if I could get through 12 episodes, then I was going to take a break and reevaluate and see how it was going. And I'm 63 episodes in and haven't slowed down and still in season one and never took that break. And, you know, so I'm just I'm kind of seeing where it takes me right now. But I'm really hoping it opens up some opportunities. I would love nothing more than to be able to you know, have the podcast pay for itself and maybe make a little extra off of it and start donating some some of that money into conservation and stuff like that and grow my name in the conservation community and the zoo community in a lot of ways. And then also, you know, be a drummer. That's the life. Well, you're doing it. Let's keep saying it out loud. Let's manifest Ooh. it. Let's manifest it. We're going to make this happen for you, John. You're doing it. This is great. I feel like it's definitely happening. I could not, I cannot believe where I am seven months into this journey. I cannot believe it. It's yes. insane. And and I know like you know I talked about a lot of the big stuff that's happened and the cool things and the 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 donations and all that stuff but also like just every once in a while I'll get a text from somebody and they'll be like hey I just had a meeting with this person and uh, they also know you from the podcast and uh, we spent 20 minutes talking about you and, and how you're making an impact and how great it is and how the world needs more people like you. And what? How is that a thing? How is that? How is that a thing? You know, um, especially now, like, yeah, I had no clue what this would become. Uh, so I can't wait. I have no clue where it will go, but I can't wait to see. That's great. That's great. So do you have any advice or I know we've talked about so much, but for anybody listening, if you could share anything with anybody listening, what would that be? I have two things that I always like to share. This is my message, which is to find and follow your passion. Um, I have made a lot of sacrifices in doing so. And, and a lot of things that have happened in my life are things that maybe people wouldn't want to go through uh, in order to do it. But I get to do what I love to do every day, uh, you know, in a non-COVID world. And, um, and I literally can say, live in the dream. Like, you know how people always say, oh, how are you today? And you go, ugh, live in the dream. And it's always sarcastic. I say it and I'm not being sarcastic. I'm legitimately living my dream and that is insane. It's so cool. I love it so much. Um, so follow your passion. And if it doesn't work, that's cool. At least you followed it. I think the most bitter people that I know and the saddest people I know are the people who just gave up without trying. Try. You know, there are ways to make things work. There are ways to, to, to do it, but follow your passion. And then the other thing, the, the best advice that I give to people, um, uh, deeper than that, because that's, that's very, you know, new agey, follow your passion, man, make it happen. Um, but, uh, is find your niche because Ross Safari would not be successful if this podcast already existed, you know? Um, and I mean, there are close ones. There are definitely ones where it's, it's similar-ish. I could see how you could think, oh, this is, this is, you know, this podcast or that, whatever. But um, I found a niche and I, I can define what that niche is, not just the, the zookeeper angle of it, but also being an outsider and learning and you're coming along on my journey in this podcast. 
And that's really something that doesn't exist. And that's really cool. And, um, you know, I think when you find a niche that you can fill uniquely, then there's a reason for people to interact with you as opposed to, you know, I'm a good drummer and I have certain styles and stuff that I'm a very good drummer, but so are thousands of other people, you know? And so even in that world to really build a career that's sustainable, because most people that act, most people that are musicians, even the ones that tour, even the ones that are considered successful still are also waiters or, um, you know, have some day job, whatever it may be. And I do not. And, um, the way I've been able to sustain that is I, I found a very specific niche in the, the actor musician community as a onstage drummer who is able to to be kind of the onstage rock starry drummer and sometimes i have to act and i can say the lines and i can be convincing and i do a lot of stick tricks when i'm playing and i do i am a show on stage and most people that are in theater are not that way and most people that are drummers that are that way are not in theater by being a theater drummer that is that way i found a niche and there are others out there, but there are also enough shows out there where, where you could you could support the small number of us. And um, so by doing that, I, I built a career that is is really solid, you know. And um, so, yeah, I think finding your niche, whether it's the podcast, whether it's how I'm doing most of my drumming, uh, that, that's been the biggest thing for me. That's gorgeous. Yes. Thank you. Yeah. Find it what it is. Find what it is. That's great. So how can anybody connect with you? If anybody listening wants to connect with John Rossi, how, how do they do that? Well, the, uh, there, there's obviously, you know, the website is uh, rossafari.com. And um, also, if you're interested in my music, there's rossidrums.com. And uh, I'm on Instagram, uh, at rossafari, also on Facebook. Um, I think there's a Twitter, but I don't really use it much. Um, but it's all at rossafari. Uh, and um, rossafaripod at gmail.com is my email address. And if you have... Uh, guest ideas or, or are somebody who think you would make a good guest. I've been enjoying, I've had more people reaching out to me lately about being on the podcast and boy, does that make my life easier. So please, if you think you would be a good <laughs> guest, reach out. Um, I would enjoy, you know, seeing if, if we think it would be a good fit. Um, but then the biggest thing is just go, go listen to the podcast. It's available everywhere. It's called Rossafari, R-O-S-S-I-F-A-R-I. And, uh, it's, it's literally on every available app that does podcasts. It's, you know, Apple and Google and Spotify and, um, Amazon music and Pandora and all the places. Um, it's even on audible. If you're an audiobook fan, uh, go, go grab some episodes, take a listen. I, I think it's a good time. And, um, if you hit subscribe, even if it's not your favorite thing in the world, and even if you think my voice is grading or whatever, uh, it'll still download the episode. And that actually still helps me get other people to see it and get the word out there. And, um, you know, that's really important. The, the, the going in and supporting each other in the conservation community in little free ways like that matters so much and you know tell me about your group i will like it i will i will follow you on facebook i will follow on instagram whatever it may be like let's help each other out let's build our numbers let's show the overall world that the conservation world is bigger and more connected because all of these things podcasts and instagram and facebook and all that run off of really annoying algorithms and the best way to get past that is to engage with each other couldn't have said it better myself. That was perfect. That was perfect. So everybody go out, you know, reach out, 
talk to John. He's incredible. I recently was just uh, interviewed as well. And so we're going to be sharing each other's stories. So that's very exciting. And I guess I really haven't shared my story actually on, on my own podcast, which I think is really interesting. So if you want to hear I actually, my story. I realized that so many people were, were wanting to learn more about me and hear more about me. And like people were giving me feedback saying they love the episode, but like, who are you? That um, I actually had one of my guests interview me on my own podcast. Um, and I called it the reverse interview and people loved it. I was shocked, nice. but people <laughs> loved it. Yeah. It was, it was, it was a fun idea. Oh, that's great. I'll have to like ear tag about this. Like maybe a future episode. Yeah. yeah. But yes, everybody go, go listen to John, um, on Rastafari. It's, it's such a great show. It is so fun, especially after dark stories. Yeah, it's so <laughs> fun. Also some, um, guests that you've already heard Johnny Payne is on yours as well as Dave Johnson. Everybody loves Dave Johnson. So if you want to hear like a different, a different side of their stories, go check out Rastafari. Um, but yeah. Thanks so much, John, for coming on. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. It's time now, don't you know? We've come to the end of the show. But there's one tale left to go. You're gonna laugh and say, oh no. It's time for the Rossifari poop story. All right, y'all. So this isn't the craziest poop story that you've ever heard, but uh, it happened recently and I thought I would share it with you all. So I was recently visiting my good friends Bandit, Santi, and Cora, the red pandas that live at the Columbus Zoo on exhibit. And as I was hanging out with them, my foot hit a patch of ice, and I went flying. Now, it's interesting how your brain can process so much information in that split second. And I distinctly remember my thoughts at this time being, well, core is right underneath me, so I can't just shove my foot down or fall down. And Bandit had just been hanging out at my left leg, and I didn't know where he was, so I couldn't risk putting that leg down and stepping on a panda, because stepping on a red panda might actually cause my brain to melt out of my body. It would just be horrible. So I glanced down as I was half falling, and I noticed... There were two safe places that I could see. So I shoved my right foot down as fast as I could directly into a pile of panda poop. And my left foot went crashing down. I tried to aim so that it landed next to the water bowl, but it landed in the water bowl, splashing a ton of water and backwash all over my very not waterproof shoes. And so for the rest of the day, as I walked around the zoo, I had panda poop on one foot. I mean, I scraped it off, but there was still some there, I'm sure. And panda spit soaking through my socks for the rest of the day. Hey, it's always an adventure when you're spending time with animals, right? Well, that was all the fun. Hope you guys enjoyed hearing more about my story and hearing Brooke and I banter together. I think it was a good time. Uh, I'll be back next week with some normal episodes with guests that aren't me and hosts that are. So don't forget to hit up at Rewildology and make sure you're subscribed to the Rewildology podcast. Brooke is awesome, as you can tell. And of course, make sure you're following along at Rossafari and subscribed to and rating and reviewing, if possible, Rossafari as well. Alrighty, here come those Stiderk. 
Well, that's our show for this week. I hope you enjoyed listening as much as I enjoyed making it. Our theme song is Sevens by Nathan Burke, performed by Nathan Burke and John Rossi. Listen and subscribe on any podcast app. Please take the time to leave a review as it helps other people find our podcast. You can find Rossafari on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at Rossafari, on the web at Rossafari.com, or email me directly at rossafaripod at gmail.com. Now, stop listening to me and go visit a zoo.